Hello and welcome back to The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. On this week's podcast, Backtrack and Union Jack. There's a row on in Labour about flags again. Can Keir Starmer finally make this progressive patriotism thing happen after all? Will the party ever get over its neurosis about the national symbols that are so beloved by the people who've stopped voting for it? Plus, how are countries like China and Russia using it to increase their influence around the world? And monolingual Britain. At a time when we're supposed to be going global, why is Britain still so averse to learning foreign languages? Or does the government think we can still get away with just shouting everything in English? All that and more on today's Bunker. Welcome back to the weekly panel edition of The Bunker. Special favour, if you're enjoying the podcast, why not review and rate us on Apple Podcasts? It's the best way to push us up the charts and get us noticed. On the panel today, comedian and broadcaster Ahir Shah. Hello, Ahir. How are you? Hello. Hello, hello, Andrew. I'm all right. Ahir, Britain had another normal one last week with the, the sad death of Captain Tom Moore generating genuine... Uh, it was very genuinely moving and also produced the inevitable weird poems and Photoshop images of him meeting Princess Diana and similar. Boris Johnson decreed a national clap at 6pm on Wednesday, but it wasn't quite so well attended as NHS claps and things in the past. What do you think that was? Have we kind of got, uh, you know, corona fatigue or something similar? Um, I don't, oh, obviously, very sad, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Nice man uh, and everything. Uh, I think probably it just wasn't as well attended because... It would, like I felt as though the the one for care. I I did the NHS one uh, every week, but because I live quite near a hospital, and there was this sort of sense that like us and all the neighbours were doing it like for and at these people who yeah. were right there. Whereas uh, perhaps this this man uh, was no longer with us, and that's a bit more diffuse uh, or whatever. I don't know, or it was just cold. I don't know. Or, or perhaps people don't like being effectively kind of ordered by the Prime Minister to go and display their spontaneous feelings. Yeah, the previous one was sort of organic, right? Yeah. Uh, and this one was Boris Johnson being like, hey, everyone forget about all the terrible shit that I did for a little while and go and clap. Apart from the obvious sincere displays of, of sadness at, at, at the death of this guy who did this, this incredible thing, there have been the weird reactions and this but there's been a you know there were calls for a, a statue of captain tom to be erected and richard littlejohn thinks that big black lives matter are going to topple this as yet non-existent statue in some kind of form of psychic wokery do you think we're going to get the statue do you think it's going to happen uh i mean as as someone who is not fine with racism i would be fine with the statue and so mm. mr littlejohn doesn't need to worry uh, about that i don't think that they're going to be i don't think that captain tom kind of gets in quite the same part of the national psyche and history as edward colston yeah and yeah i, I think that there are I, I would say important differences between those people yeah, I know. It's strange. the assumption that because it's a statue, the assumption that people are going to want to tear it down because yeah. it just... We don't just hate all statues. I know. yeah. <laughs> like, I was like, we're getting Colston. We're getting the annoying guys in Covent Garden who are dressed as Yoda or whatever, yeah. if they're still there. Watch <laughs> out, Edith Cavell. You're coming down next. For no for no reason other than you're just a statue. Yeah, it's a very strange, <laughs> strange way of imagining that the other side will behave. Also joining us, we have <laughs> Atlantic staff writer, Yasmin Serhan. Hello, Yasmin. Hello. It's Trumpeachment Week. Uh, have you got your snacks and your giant foam hats ready for the performance? 
Uh, this isn't the Super Bowl, Andrew. We don't, um, we don't bring out the chips and dips for just any show, especially one that we've already seen. Um, and especially one that doesn't guarantee like a halftime performance from Beyonce. Those are special occasions. <laughs> one would hope that a halftime performance from Beyonce in, in the Trump impeachment would be something rather special. How, how do you think it's going to play out this weekend? We're, we're not banking on a conviction, are we? No, we're not. I think, you know... What we do know about it seems to be this. Um, unlike the first impeachment, this one seems to be like it will happen a lot more quickly. Um, I've been seeing reports that, you know, it could proceedings could wrap up in under a week. And that's largely because it looks like um, and this could change, but it does look like the Democrats aren't going to be relying on witnesses um, in the way that they did in the last impeachment. And the reason for that is quite simple. All the lawmakers there were witnesses to, and, and, and some might argue, victims of, of the January 6th um, insurrection, which is obviously the issue at hand and the, and the former president's um, role in sort of stoking th- those events. So, um, yeah, what we know is that it, the proceedings are probably going to be pretty quickly. And, and as you rightly mentioned, that there will probably not be enough support by Republicans in the Senate to convict. They need 17. I think it was just five of them who voted to proceed with the trial. Um, By and large, the Republicans seem to be taking on the position that it is unconstitutional to impeach a president who is no longer in power. Um, Others would would disagree with that. But but there would be, um, I think it's nonetheless important, um, and, and I think the Democrats think this, that this trial go ahead anyway. Um, if not for a conviction, then at least to kind of, you know, ensure that January 6th is in the historical record. Is, is there a number of votes that would be considered a moral victory, as it were, that, you know, that uh, might not reach the required supermajority of 17, but would it require, you know, for instance, if, if more Republicans votes to convict than voted last time, is that, would that be considered some kind of a historical marker? Definitely. I mean, I think, you know, last time we had Mitt Romney um, and this time, you know, we, we know that at the very least, if the five were any to go by, that we'll certainly have more than that. So, yeah, I mean, I think it'll be important. Obviously, a failure to convict would mean that Donald Trump could indeed run again. And perhaps for his supporters, it'll be a vindication that, you know, the endless witch hunts against him have failed. But but I think for the other side, it'll be like, look, you know, this impeachment just happened so much faster than the last one, because I think there was more of a universal understanding that the events were so serious that it required them doing this again, even though he was just, you know, days away from leaving. Completing today's panel is former diplomat, former head of the government's Prevent Programme and international man of mystery, Arthur Snell. Hello, Arthur. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? Good, thank you. The big foreign policy story at the moment is the, the military coup in Myanmar, which came pretty much unexpectedly. What What is the latest on that and uh, what should we be focusing on? Well, the two most interesting things of the last sort of 48 hours, one has been a massive show of demonstrations against the coup across the country. We shouldn't forget that the uh, military junta in Myanmar historically has been very, very uh, authoritarian, has used violence against protesters and yet, in spite of that, there's been a huge popular show of um, sort of rejection of the coup, even in quite remote parts of the country, places where you wouldn't necessarily expect, expect to see that. At one point, the um, the generals who seized power seemed to have switched off the internet, but then it switched back on again. No one's quite sure why. And there's no sign of any of this sort of abating. So that's pretty significant. And I think the other thing that's worth noting is that actually the, the general who seized power gave a sort of address to the nation today. He came up on TV. 
And I, I wonder whether he and his uh, sort of co-plotters are a bit surprised at the level of the public uprising because he seemed to be trying to reassure people that although the military had seized power, everything's going to be fine and they're going to run elections again and, you know, the future is rosy. Now, of course, there's no reason to trust him, but one wonders quite what, what the message he's trying to put across is. First up, is Keir Starmer trying to wrap Labour in the flag when he ought to be denouncing Boris Johnson in a manner more congenial to the membership? A strategy document leaked last week argued that Labour should make use of the union flag, veterans and dressing smartly as part of a rebrand to help it win back disillusioned voters in the Red Wall. This produced uproar from the Labour left, who say the plan risks alienating young and BAME voters, lacks ambition and authenticity and something something Tony Blair. Arthur, Labour copped a lot of criticism at the last election for not being visibly patriotic, and many Red Wall voters thought Jeremy Corbyn was was actively anti-British. Starmer hasn't actually decided on anything yet. This is just floated, this is a leak. But what do you think of it as a strategy to win back voters? Well, perhaps it's already had the effect that it needs, which is that he signposted the intention to be more visibly patriotic. He doesn't need to announce any particular policies but he's sending an important message to those voters who were put off, who noticed that Corbyn was ready to take the, you know, the Russian story on the Salisbury poisoning and Corbyn's decades of sort of engagement with fringe movements around the world. And that's something that just didn't connect with a lot of um, working class people in this country. Why is it that the Labour Party finds it so difficult to discuss themes of patriotism and themes of love of country? Well, Again, I think the people who find this difficult may be the ones who are sort of vocal on Twitter and in newspapers and websites, which are read by Labour voters anyway. But I think that out there, you know, in the real world, I'm not sure that this is a, either complicated or particularly controversial. I think there are plenty of people who think that it's absolutely necessary for a mainstream political party that aspires to uh, national government to have a have a strong vein of patriotism. Oh, yeah. What, what what do you think? I mean, a it's going is it going to wash with the voters that Labour lost at the last election, and b is it going to wash with the people who stuck with Labour? Do you think? Uh, I mean, it's all quite naff, uh, really. <laughs> but I, I don't know that you'd necessarily expect or desire your politics to be unbelievably sexy this podcast of course accepted uh so yeah it it, it seems uh a bit naff you do sort of expect that people who want to govern a country would also quite like it uh i quite like it and so i don't think that it's going to do uh massive amounts of harm at least other than further exercising the bee in bonnets of sort of people whose performative loathing of Britain is just as sort of exceptionalist as those who sincerely believe it to be the best and most wonderful and infallible place in the world. It does seem to boil down to an argument about, you know, does the flag symbolise a load of immutable things which are kind of integral to it, can't ever be changed? Or can you make the flag mean what you want it to mean? You know, can it be... You put it on Noel Gallagher's guitar and suddenly it's all wonderful and pop art and pop culture and, and, and so on. You wave it on a horrible march round Trafalgar Square full of angry white blokes shouting and suddenly it's much more of a, an unpleasant thing. And if you kind of, if you cede it to those guys, then that is what it's going to mean. 
Oh, look, symbols are very contingent on the context that they're being used in and the people who they're being used by. And I say that with great authority because my grandmother literally has swastikas outside her front door. Oh, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is, <laughs> and it's not because of, so, uh, it's not because of the worst people who ever used that symbol. It's because of where that symbol actually uh, originally comes from. Uh, so yeah, part, part of me does feel, uh, that sort of seeding all of these symbols exclusively to the worst of us because that's who we've decided they're, uh, irrevocably associated with for some reason. Uh, doesn't seem like a nice way of going about things going forward. I hear there was a really good tweet from you this week that said, uh, I will never love Britain enough for some white people nor hate it enough for others. But what, what did you mean by that? Because I kind of, that made me think in a way I hadn't thought of before about white people think about non-white people in this country. Yeah, I think uh, sort of Musa Konga replied to it on Twitter saying, like, it's, it's sort of an immigrant's paradox, uh, right? Like, I, I can't be the sort of extraordinary flag-waving in denial of everything negative that has happened uh, in this country's history. But at the same time, I, I feel as though there's a certain section of people, and I do think that it's in large part just a, a performative thing, uh, whose exceptionalism uh, has them see that this is absolutely the worst place, uh, and what have you. And I, I don't really feel like I'll ever fully be able to buy into that too, because it's just not like it, it's still where my family are, and it's a place that I'm fond of, and I, you know. Uh, go about my life here and have lived all of it here. And so, yeah, I, I just think that I will never, never be as fond or as anti as proper zealots would require. Yes, I mean, you must think we're completely neurotic about this in this country because, you know, America is covered in flags in everybody's front garden across the political spectrum. Nobody minds. It's just part of the landscape. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I mean, the, the one thing I will say is whilst I don't think we're, I don't think the the flag as a symbol is quite as polarized. I, I do think we're, we're kind of increasingly getting a bit more that way. And I think that's largely to do with the fact that there have been attempts to sort of politicize these national symbols. I mean, you think about like President, former President Trump now and his sort of nostalgic nationalism. And, you know, I, I don't know if anyone saw the image of him like hugging the flag. Um, th there is a temptation to make it something that's, you know, of the right, that this sort of nationalism and patriotism is something that, you know, the right is very good at. But, but no, generally, I think, yeah, Americans, you know, the American flag is this ubiquitous symbol. When you're, when you're in school in the States, you, you know, a common thing you do in the morning, first thing when you're in your classroom is you stand up, you put your hand over your heart and you do, you do the Pledge of Allegiance, which I, I think is something that, I don't know if, I, I can't imagine Britain has anything similar to that. I feel like I'm Brits would probably find that quite weird. We would find it quite weird. In 2016, YouGov asked people if they agreed with the statement, my country is the best in the world. And 41% of Americans agreed with this statement and 13% of British people agreed with it. What, what do you think Americans think much more highly of their country than than the British counterparts and, and tend to say more in a, in a context of, of patriotism? It's easy. I mean, we are the yeah, best. Yeah, apart from you know, that. Now that I've made everyone's eyes <laughs> roll. Um, yeah, no, I, I think, you know, part of it, I think, has to do this notion of superiority, which I think that's kind of just really heavily ingrained in our national narrative. I mean, you'll hear it. That's what Americans tell themselves. And it doesn't really matter what side of the spectrum they're on. You'll hear Donald Trump say it, but you also hear President Biden say it, that, you know, that this kind of belief that 
you know, we that America's promise is just so great. And that even if it isn't always meeting that promise that, you know, that the, the notion of, of, of the country is, is just the best in the world, the world leader. So I think a big part of the reason is, is because that's exactly what we tell ourselves. And that's the narrative that we grow up with. Um, you know, that said, it, it's not like those perceptions haven't taken a hit in recent years. I mean, you note know, the YouGov poll, but even I was just looking at some Gallup polling. And since 2001, which I think then, you know, the sentiment, I think largely it was like 70% or some ridiculous number um, of Americans, you know, were very, very proud um, to be American. I think that number has fallen to just around 45%. So, and, and apparently that shift is particularly noticeable among Democrats, which I think is probably no small part due to the fact that, you know, our standing in the world has changed, the way that the world sees us has changed, and, and perhaps the way we see ourselves has changed a bit too. Now, vaccines. The global rollout is proceeding, but at a mixed pace. More than 120 million vaccinations have taken place around the world to date, yet 70% of these are in the world's 50 richest countries, according to the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. The 50 poorest have received 0.1% of vaccinations. And it's all spurring world powers into competition as as opposed to collaboration. China's made their own vaccine, Sinovac, and, and has been able to take full advantage of the health crisis, filling the void left by many Western countries countries in developing countries and russia is claiming 92 percent effectiveness for its sputnik vaccine brazil has bought 10 million doses of that so are vaccines the latest soft power tool in a world that's been turned upside down by covid19 yasmin i want to start with you last year the, at the world health assembly xi jinping said that any vaccine created by china was going to be a global public good uh, and china is supplying brazil indonesia the uae turkey peru and chile with vaccinations what is China thinking here? Is this seen as uh, a, a way to forge closer relationships and accentuate their influence around the world? Yeah, I mean, I, I would imagine it's a little bit of both. I mean, um, you know, I think anything that China can do to sort of shift the narrative um, from one in which, you know, it, that that it was like, you know, per, it's shift the narrative from perhaps negative perceptions of its handling of the pandemic at its onset into one where it really stepped up and took sort of a global power role, particularly at a time where the U.S. didn't, um, is a good thing. And, and if it can, you know, be seen to be providing life-saving vaccines um, in, in the process and kind of helping the world overcome that, I think that's, you know, obviously a really attractive um, goal to reach. Um, at the same time, though, I, I don't think it's all altruistic. I, I think there is cert a certain level of vaccine diplomacy being had here. And, and certainly a concern that I've kind of heard among folks, uh, particularly in the U.S., is that China and Russia are sort of racing ahead with, with their own vaccines and, and sharing them around the world to sort of, you know, kind of curry favor with various countries, really cement their influence. Um, and, and I think that's something that, you know, perhaps the U.S. would maybe look to would have with a bit of concern. Obviously, it's not really in the position right now to be giving out all of its vaccines because it's, you know, facing quite a big crisis at home. Um, but yeah. So there does seem to be a fine line between health diplomacy and, and health geopolitics. Uh, there aren't really complete studies of China's vaccines, the Sinovac and the Sinopharm, available yet. They are something mm. of a mystery. Would, would, would you Would you be happy to take one, do you think? Would you be happy to take the Sinovac? <laughs> um, personally, Probably not. I think, you know, and I think a lot of people would, would feel a bit of hesitancy. And I think that comes from a very privileged position. Obviously, I, I live in a country where, where there are other vaccines available and I come from a country where there are other vaccines available. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think I would look at 
kind of look at that with a bit of trepidation. And indeed, you know, I have a I have a friend anecdotally who's in the UAE where he he explained it to me. They're giving out the I think it's uh, either Sinovac or Sinopharm, like candy is what he told me. And he was actually asking me if there was any data that he could find that I could share with him on it, because he was a bit worried about the prospect. You know, he could easily get it at work or something, but he didn't know if that's necessarily something that he wanted to take. So, you know, I think if you're if you're young and you have options and, and you know, then maybe, yeah, you'd probably think, you know what, let me just let me just hold off and, and wait until I can see some data that that gives me a bit of. Yeah, assurance. Do you think we're going to end up in a two-speed world on vaccines where you know, the rich nations have uh, immunity and the poor ones don't? Uh, yeah, to an extent, we're, we're kind of already there. I mean, vaccine nationalism has all but ensured that wealthy countries are going to get vaccinated far more quickly than poorer ones. Um, I was speaking to someone from Duke University's Global Health Innovation Center the other day, um, and they told me that we're kind of past the point of telling rich countries to stop buying all the vaccines, that you know, in that respect, the damage is kind of already done. But as for whether which countries are necessarily going to be more immune than the rest of the world, you know, that weirdly enough, that may not necessarily be the case. Because if the new variants, you know, here in Britain, from South Africa, from Brazil, have demonstrated anything, it's that the coronavirus has a capacity to evolve and mutate into more transmissible forms. And if there are uncontrolled outbreaks anywhere, that could, you know, potentially result in new variants, some of which may thwart the vaccines that we currently have now and, you know, make us vulnerable all over again. So, um, you know, whilst rich, rich countries can certainly assure that they have access to vaccines first, if there are uncontrolled outbreaks anywhere, it is very much in their interest to make sure that those are taken care of, lest new variants come that make all the billions they spent not as worth it. You know, then they'll have to wait again for new variations of vaccines. So it, it's not complete. It's not a complete safeguard. Arthur, I mean, the West has made a huge deal of accessing as many vaccines as humanly possible. Meanwhile, China and Russia are using theirs as ways to win friends and influence people, perhaps. Oh, you know, we've seen we've seen hot war, we've seen cold war, are we now seeing, you know, vaccine war? I think to some extent, clearly one of the things that both China and Russia can do is not really care very much about public opinion in their own countries. So I whether or not there are Chinese people who are across that their vaccine is being spread around the world where perhaps it's there's lack of supply in China. I genuinely don't know, but it's not something that Xi Jinping has to worry about. Whereas we've all seen the huge political crisis that was caused as a result of what appears to have been really a misunderstanding between AstraZeneca and the European Commission about um, you know production levels. So it is much easier for China and Russia to use their vaccines in a political way. Russia rolled out the Sputnik uh, vaccine before the final trial data was released, as I was just saying. It has now been deemed safe, mostly. But if you look at the countries that it's going to, it's Argentina, Venezuela, the UAE, Iran, you know, Palestine. They're not, they're not exactly the most aligned with the West. Do you think this is going to enhance Russia's influence in these places? Definitely. And of course, it may do so in a completely justified way. Whilst at the beginning, I recall that I think Putin announced that had his his niece had been vaccinated or something, and there was a lot of scoffing, and it would be easy to, you know, to be cynical about that. But it does appear likely that it is a highly effective vaccine. And if that proves to be the case, then it's a reminder that uh, we may not like Russia's politics, but it's a country that's capable of of considerable technological feats. So, you know, why wouldn't they use it to increase their influence? You just mentioned that the, the very messy state of the vaccine in the EU, it's had a very poor rollout. Hungary is now receiving vaccines from Russia and China. Hungary, the, the, now the problem child of the EU. 
do you think this could be uh, a situation where Putin is looking at yet further ways to destabilize the EU? It would be very strange if he didn't do that. So I'm absolutely certain that's going to happen. And we shouldn't forget that, you know, the Russia and Chinese vaccines, or particularly the Chinese one, have already had a significant uh, impact in terms of the rollout of vaccinations in different countries. So many people overlook the fact that the country with the second highest vaccination rate is the UAE. And that's thanks largely to the Chinese vaccine, which they've been using there. So ultimately, you know, the, these vaccinations, just because they're not from, from uh, you know, Western countries, and maybe some of the data hasn't quite sort of complied with with standards required in the West. But as long as they're not actually dangerous, and I've obviously no knowledge that they would be, then these vaccinations are very powerful political tools for, for, for the countries that have made. We should start every edition of this podcast by saying, hello, welcome to the bunker. We're not epidemiologists. And then take it from there. <laughs> yes. Uh, here, um, aside from Israel, Britain seems to have done pretty much the best in the vaccine rollout, even despite the uh, recent uh, you know, problems of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Are, are you surprised at how well we've done so far? It is pretty much the only thing Britain has done well. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not surprised because I felt as though we were due one. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I think that we were due a win. I know that that's not how anything works. And I know that there's probably a term for that kind of logical fallacy. Uh, but we've been rolling snake eyes too long, baby. Uh, and it was, uh, it was time to, it was time to absolutely smash it out the park with something. Arthur, just finally, in related matters, as, as well as COVID-19, the Russian people are involved in a, in a fight for democracy at the moment, aren't they? Protests are continuing over the imprisonment of Alexei Navalny. Do you think, I mean, a lot of people talked about how in, in the aftermath of the Crimean incident, where Putin annexed a large chunk of Crimea, and it seemed to, it seemed to bring the country together. In, it seems to make you know to, to, to sort of suppress dissent in Russia, and and you know people talked about a Crimea consensus. Do you think that consensus is breaking down now? It seems to be. I've actually been someone who's always been very reluctant to sort of see the end of Putin's popularity because I think it's you know there's a lot of wish fulfillment there, and compared to a lot of Western politicians, he still has very high numbers. However. There is recent polling that shows that his numbers, his popularity is really dropping fast. And actually, the way he's reacted with Navalny, both in terms of, you know, rearresting him, the violence meted out against the protesters, the fact that Navalny got this ridiculously uh, sort of uh, heavy sentence um, and then gave an incredible speech in the courthouse ridiculing Putin uh, drawing attention to his corruption and so on. You know, Putin has not played his cards at all well. Uh, and I think that there is this breakdown of the consensus where a lot of Russian people put up with Putin. They didn't necessarily like what he did, but they liked the fact that Russia was strong and secure. And maybe that is just starting not to look like such a good deal anymore. Well, while we're still on coronavirus temporary sense loss is one of the, the markers of covid but what happens when your livelihood depends on your nose and on your sense of smell and then you go and lose it federica zangarella is the vice president of the uk sommelier association she explains how her experience of sense loss changed her perception of wines my name is federica zangarella I'm the UK Sommelier Association Vice President. I train sommeliers. I teach wine and food pairing, wine tasting, and Italian wines. I had COVID in the very early stages of the pandemic, 
And well, it was very confusing because it was not still 100% clear that the loss of sense of smell and taste was part of the symptoms. We were running our sommelier course, and but because the course was online, and I asked my student to go and buy a couple of wines from a supermarket in order to taste the wines together online. I opened the wines and I started smelling and tasting, and I couldn't smell and taste anything. Because I was not aware that what that was an issue, I blamed the wines. And I started saying to my students, I'm very sorry, these wines are very bad quality because I can't smell anything. They are tasteless. Actually, they're quite acidic. And uh, but it was a bit confusing because I know that wines, they should taste something even if they're low quality. My students, they were quite confused. Their train was good enough to understand that there was something wrong in what I was saying. The loss of smell and taste lasted more than three weeks. And of course, it was very challenging because I had to keep doing my job and teach people to taste and smell. Of course, I had to keep teaching. Fortunately, with my students, I was asking them to tell me what was the aromas. And of course, I was doing a little bit of research on the wines to understand what potentially was there. Even if with wine, you never know what you have there. Even if you, do, you know the grey variety, you know the producer, you know the area, but still, wine is always surprising. Then you need to analyze it with your own senses. Because the sense of smell and taste is also connected with emotions, I think what uh, is better to do in that case is keep challenging your senses than smell as much as you can. I remember when I realized that I recovered my sense of smell, I was walking and I saw a bush full of white flowers. I went there and I tried to smell because that helps. That helps probably your brain because as, as far as I know, it's not a physical problem connected with your nose, but it's a neurological problem, then maybe forcing those memories and forcing your senses, that can help. I think that is the best recommendation I can give. Just keep smelling flowers, fruits, wine, everything in order to get that connection between your brain and your senses back. So there was something that I really enjoyed about this uh, little stick. Obviously, I didn't enjoy the fact that she got coronavirus, but uh, it just really strongly reminded me having to sort of semi-fake it as a sommelier, uh, despite not having a smell and taste while you're leading these classes, reminded me of when my mother briefly joined a book club, despite the fact that she doesn't like books because she loves having a go (laughs) and like just getting involved. But what she would do is just watch the film that all of the books were based on uh, and was very successful in this book club for quite a while until she got to one where the film version dramatically changed the ending. Got found out so dramatically by all the of thing is, The thing is, uh, you can't watch the film of the wine and just bone up on it like that. You've got to actually drink the wine to know what's going on with yeah. it. <laughs> Can you not just watch sideways? you could. Oh, hey, what would you miss if, uh, if you lost your sense of smell? What, what, what would, it, would, it dis- would it destroy an enormously important part of your life? Yeah, well, I, I would, uh, I would miss the smell of sort of spices hitting hot oil, and I would miss the taste uh, that comes about half an hour after spices have hit hot oil. Basically, I, I would miss uh, everything my mother was bullied for uh, as a child, <laughs> uh, but everything that we should rightly take pride in because it's fucking delicious. Arthur, there's loads we don't still don't know about the side effects of COVID, including why some people quickly recover their ability to smell, and others lose it completely and forever. I was talking to a friend at the weekend who said that her lovely morning coffee that she used to really enjoy now just smells of rotten eggs. 
and uh, it's completely destroyed our enjoyment of it. Why? why I mean, you can understand why we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic trying to deal with this right now. Do you think we're going to have to, at length, deal with these these strange kind of micro disabilities almost, where it's not a life threatening thing, but it's this dramatically changed people's experience of life? Yeah, I mean, I think if you sort of count this as part of the long COVID phenomenon, it does feel as if there's going to be a huge wide range of ways in which people are affected. You know, I was talking to someone the other day who his sort of recovery is fine, except he just finds it really hard to concentrate. And so it's weird little things like that yeah. where the long-term effects just haven't been felt yet. And I suppose, you know, there's the, the, there's still a national crisis on, so no one's really got the bandwidth to deal with these things. But But we will be, I suppose, for decades trying to work out how we sort of rebuild lives that have been changed in quite fundamental, albeit sort of narrow ways. And yes, I mean, this could be quite serious, kind of, because t- you know, temporary loss of, of senses like the, the ability to smell and to a lesser extent taste can actually have a safety impact on life. You know, if people report being unable to detect smoke or gas leaks at home, or, or even when their child's nappy needs changing, do you think that's, are we going to be seeing, you know, a, a need to almost change the way we live in future to take account of the fact that a large number of people will have this permanent affliction? Yeah, absolutely. Um, actually, there's a, a really fantastic New York, New York Times piece on exactly this, like how kind of the sense of smell in particular has been incredibly underrated. And the author um, is, I want to make sure I'm pronouncing this right, but anosmic. So she, um, she, she's never been able to smell. Um, and, she, and she kind of introduces that quite late into the piece, but she notes how she kind of one of the, the first instances that prompted her to realize this was when her sister, or one of her relatives kind of, you know, came in and thankfully right before she was about to light a match and re- she hadn't realized that the whole cabin had filled with propane. So, you know, this can be incredibly dangerous. And um, I think it'll certainly, it for some people, unfortunately, cause them to sort of lead their lives in very different ways from the seemingly menial, say, you know, not menial to me, at least enjoying your, your morning cup of coffee is essential. So yeah, you know, being able to know whether there's a fire in your house. So yeah, I think it'll be it'll be huge, and and if anything, I would hope you know one would hope that you wouldn't need to give people much of an incentive not to get coronavirus, um, it, just purely based on the fact that you know it's it's a deadly disease or a deadly virus, I should say, and and could potentially cause a, a lot of you know long term harm. But just by the very fact that your your total you know your way of life could completely change, I, it certainly scares me straight. I'm just staying inside and enjoying my coffee while I can taste it. I don't know. I think there's probably a good case for, you know, the, the kind of the dogged deniers who say, no, it's just the flu. No, it's just a big con. You can give them the statistics, uh, you know, till you give them all the statistics you can lay your hands on. But if you were to say, and you'll never be able to taste a cheese sandwich ever again or taste beer, perhaps that would make the difference. Who knows? I, I think I hear a new marketing campaign in the works. Finally, why is Britain so bad at languages? A 2019 Erasmus survey found that just 32% of 15 to 30-year-olds in Britain said they could read and write in another language, compared to an EU average of 87%. Admissions to study foreign languages at university have fallen by a third since 2011 to just 3,830, and headteachers have warned we risk becoming monolingual Britain. Meanwhile, the government's talking about global Britain, but there seems precious little focus on us improving our ability to communicate. Why is this and what should we be doing about it? I hear, uh, do you speak any languages apart from English or are you monolingual like me? Was that this is a terrible podcast, get me off? 
<laughs> so I uh, I speak Gujarati in addition to English. Nice. Uh, why is the rest of Britain so awful at learning languages? Uh, sort of because we kind of won, like English won. I, is, is that sort of is that sort of why basically like you, you can sort of get around a lot of the world largely because of this uh, d- thing called empire mm. which uh, you should really read about it's <laughs> terrible um but uh but yeah it's it, it's just sort of the fact that english has become a global lingua franca for a variety of reasons right like i would be very interested to know like when you say that the eu average is 87 percent, i would be interested to know what it was if you removed yeah. english from that as a second language, which I, I would want, might, might not actually be that dissimilar to what it is in Britain, if Britain's a third. But as we kind of seal ourselves off a little bit and go for the kind of the supposedly global Britain that in, involves not talking to people on our doorstep who have learned English in order to communicate with us at a business level, you know, isn't there some kind of the idea that we can bank on the notion that English will always be uh, the language of world business and world culture seems seems unwise, doesn't it? We've already heard the French discuss uh, within the EU the idea that the English language no longer really has a reason to be privileged in Europe because Britain's not part of the EU anymore. Well, I'm, I'm certainly not uh, knocking the suggestion that people can and should uh, learn foreign languages, I think, particularly for children at that stage of uh, intellectual malleability is a really wonderful um, and important thing. So hopefully there is some uh, reversal in this, because certainly like when I just sort of did French at school from 11 to 16 and can now ask for the location of various municipal buildings and absolutely nothing <laughs> else. Uh, I feel as though my, my life would probably be fuller if I had more of it, but I don't feel that strongly enough in order ever to engage with the Duolingo owl again. You do wonder whether there's an element of, you know, the, the, the government's lack of interest in this and their kind of lackadaisical attitude to, to the, the notion that the British should speak speak more languages. You do wonder whether it kind of connects to the isolationism anyway, the idea that large parts of Britain never really accepted that we were in any way connected to other countries. We, we ran them, but we weren't connected to them. And this government is the most sort of atavistic in that respect. Do you think that's why they're not particularly bothered about it? Well, and I think that also with the rise of sort of Google Translate and stuff over the course of the last few years, I think that there might be a sneaking suspicion that we'll just be able to technologize ourselves out of this one without any of the hassle. Uh, although that might end up being much like the fact that I once said to my grandmother that I wasn't going to learn how to drive because self-driving cars would be a thing within a decade. And I said that over a full decade ago. Yes, mate. How about you? Are you, are you uh, polylingual, monolingual, multilingual? Oh, maybe. Uh, I was going to try to add some Arabic in there, but to be honest, it just embarrassed me. I, I speak, yeah, I speak French and then a, a level of Arabic, just enough Arabic to make my ancestors ashamed of me. <laughs> What's the American education system like for, for languages? Uh, yeah, well, we certainly don't have a reputation, I think, for being avid language learners, um, especially c- compared to our European counterparts. Um, as far as I'm aware, there aren't any national mandates for language study. Um, in, in my own personal experience, I could you had the option to study a language um, as early as middle school, I think. And, and in my school, there's a choice between French and Spanish. Um, and then, you know, the options kind of become more so in, in high school and then in, in university. I mean, in my case, because I studied international relations, you had to study, I think, at least like two semesters of a language course. So just enough to say, uh, j'aime bien le croissant or something like that. <laughs> 
Uh, the US Census Bureau says that 20% of Americans are bilingual, but much as I hear mentioned, if you took out the English speakers from the EU, you might get a different picture. Obviously, Spanish speaking is, is such a huge aspect of American culture in the way that we don't really have a second language in the UK, but Spanish is very much the second language of, of the United States. And it's heavily politicized as well, isn't it? You, you know, you, you see politicians railing against the idea that English is being dislodged as America's first language and so on. Yeah, it's a bit weird because on the one hand you have, you know, those kind of viral videos of, you know, people saying, oh, in America you only speak English when they hear people speaking in a native tongue. But then on the other hand, you'll you'll have um, politicians like Marco Rubio and, and those who are bilingual, you know, utilizing Spanish as a way to kind of reach out to Spanish speaking voters. So, so it's a bit of a mixed bag. But, you know, I, I think part of it, I think generally in the U.S., we don't really feel like there's an incentive or a general need for us to know many languages. Um, and and it, part of that might just come down to really the dominance of the English language, I think, in, in a lot of the world. I mean, I think we just kind of, you know, are privileged in the sense that we go most places around the world and people either can speak English very well, or if, if you're in France, as I've spent some time, you'll go and attempt to speak the language and they will speak English back to you. So, um, you know, we're, <laughs> there's not really much of an incentive, but, you know, we're not very good at it. And that's why you came to England, where they speak American. Well done. Good choice. Precisely. Exactly. Arthur, you've lived in some of the world's most interesting places. How's, how are your language skills? Okay. And that was? Uh, I said I speak Arabic. Nice. You can tell how bad my language skills are. I can't even tell what the language is, let alone what's being said in it. Um, well done, Andrew. Um, Arthur, the decline in languages has been, as a, as a topic for study, as a subject, has been mirrored by a rise in STEM studies. Uh, university admissions for computer science courses were up 47% in nine years from 2011, pretty much mirroring the, the slide in language courses. Are we kind of reaping the consequences of this kind of Dominic Cummings-like obsession with technology? The idea that, you know, Britain's going to innovate itself around the world. Who cares if anybody can understand what we're saying? I think I have very contradictory views on this. So personally, I, I consider myself a reasonably good linguist um, and I've learned several languages, mostly because of work. And I've really enjoyed it. And I've found it culturally enriching, intellectually challenging. Everything about it has been positive. But at the same time, I, I don't feel that strongly that it, you know, if you were telling someone, well, should you do this instead of doing a STEM degree? I'm just not sure. Because of the fact that English is so widely spoken, because of the fact that technology is driving more and more people into the sort of Anglophone world. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I wonder the obsession with technology might be the right way to go. See, I'm, I'm the hugely hypocritical liberal who goes, it's awful, isn't it? Isn't it awful that the English don't speak any languages? It's terrible. It's terrible. And then people say, how many languages do you speak, Andrew? And I'm like, I can barely speak English, let alone anything else. So, you know. <laughs> And don't, don't forget the language of love. Oh, there you go. So we're at the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics, the TV, books, films, music, or miscellaneous that's taking them away from the outside world. Yasmin, what's keeping your mind off politics this week? Not to keep it on language still, but I'm actually been trying to get back into Duolingo. I had an <laughs> over a hundred day streak during the first lockdown and then I just became so phased by it all that I, I let it lapse. So I'm just trying now to keep it at like a three day streak. What are you doing? Are you, are you brushing up on the French or are you doing something else entirely? 
I'm trying to brush up on the Arabic, actually. Ah. A lot of really, like, non-use, I mean, no offense to Duolingo if, if they happen to be listening or anyone involved is listening, but, like, some of the sentences are so weird. It's like, your husband is very weird, Lama. I'm like, I'm never going to use that. <laughs> I, I hope I don't have to use that. Um, but, yeah, no, it's, it's, a great, it's a great little sort of, you know, it, it only takes a few minutes. I find that I tend to do it while I'm watching TV or something, so... It's not. It's, it's a good distraction. Well, I think you should keep on it because you and Arthur can do our Arabic bunker spin-off where we cover politics for the Arab-speaking world. I think that would be great. Yeah, well, let's do it. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, here, how about you? Before we started recording this podcast, I started reading The Handmaid's Tale. And after we finish recording this podcast, I will go and finish reading The Handmaid's Tale. So that's going to be my thing. Uh, I'm extraordinarily late to it, given that it existed since before I was born. Uh, And everyone's probably heard that it's very good. Uh, But if you've not heard that it's very good... It's very good. Definitely don't do your mum's trick of trying to watch the TV instead of the book because the TV goes on and on and on forever. And the book's actually pretty quickly, you read it pretty quickly. Yeah, so I'll do that and then then I'll do the Testaments next. I'm excited. Mm. Arthur, how about you? What's on on your mental escape route at the moment? I think we must be just coming towards the light at the end of the COVID tunnel because I went through a phase where I couldn't, watch anything that was sort of dystopian because it was all too depressing and it was dystopia was out, out of the window but um i've i've been able to go back to the man in the high castle which ah. is you know on amazon prime the sort of weird world where where the, the nazis and the japanese won world war ii and i i started watching it ages ago and i found it really fascinating but kind of very sort of stressful and now i'm finding it fascinating and not too stressful so yeah that's been good yes make philip k dick fiction again would be a good hat, like the, like the make all well fiction hat that was doing the rounds when, when, Trump, when Trump was around. Mine is something that I'm reading for a, an upcoming Bunker Daily, which is this astonishing book, Fall, The Mystery of Robert Maxwell by John Preston, who wrote the book that was turned into the Jeremy Thorpe TV series, A Very British Scandal, the incredible and brilliant Jeremy Thorpe series. And this story, this life story of Robert Maxwell is equally uh, suitable, I think, for one for an, an insane adaptation like that. I thought I knew a lot about Robert Maxwell, the corpulent press baron who went over the side of his yacht uh, a few days before being rumbled for looting his own pension fund. I didn't know the half of it. The stuff that goes on in here is genuinely incredible. If you would like to read a, a book which involves a, fo- a Japanese former fascist being presented to the Queen and collapsing to his knees and weeping, because that's the done thing in Japan. If you want to read about Robert Maxwell's continual changes of identity, his stunning cruelty to his kids. It is a genuinely astonishing book, and it's just out this week in hardback. But I'll be talking to John Preston in the next few days about uh, the mystery of Robert Maxwell, and I'm very much looking forward to it as somebody who very, very briefly worked in a very small part of the Maxwell empire. So that's out now for the mystery of Robert Maxwell. And that is the end of this week's bunker. Thank you, Yasmin Sarhan. Thanks for having me. And Ahir Shah. Thank you. And Arthur Snell. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Again, don't forget to subscribe. And if you enjoyed the show, of course, you can back the Bunker on Patreon. Just say our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Backers, of course, get an honorary salute on the show. And here are some now. Thanks from me to Kevin Perry, David Adger, Neil Campbell, and Paul McMenamin.
Hi, and best wishes from me to John O'Price, Sarah, Anna Karin Rask, and Dizier. Hello, and big thanks from me to Martin Cackett, Tess, Trisha Kuzden, and Richard Smith. And finally, hello, and thanks from me to Nick Carthy, Deborah Brock, Alex Neat, and Neve Ann Brown. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison, with Ahir Shah, Yasmin Saran, and Arthur Snell. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofranievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>